One other thing as, uh, with regard to that, as, as our space becomes more and more full in here, as more and more people are attending, there's a little phrase that someone taught me that I can teach you. It goes like this, sit near, park far. <laughs> sit near, park far. So if we're going to fit everybody in this church, thank you, Melissa, for sitting in the front. Other people should join. We need people sitting in the front. And, and these front areas sitting in near to each other as well, near to the front, near to each other. Um, that way uh, we can fit as many people in here as possible, not just next Sunday, but in general. And then park far. Park as far as you're able. Take as few vehicles as you can so that we have as much parking as we can for everybody. So you can remember that. Sit near, park far. Well, uh, it's Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem in such a triumphant way. And we're going to be thinking about that from John's Gospel. So if you would take your Bible and open up to John chapter 12, the Bible that looks like this, that's on page nine, or 899, actually 898. Um, so it's John 12, and we're going to be reading verses 9 to 19. So would you stand for the reading of God's Word? John 12, verses 9 to 19. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You can be seated as we pray. <clears throat> Father, we've heard your word. We've heard you speak. And now we pause together before we think on these words to talk to you. Together we want to unite our prayers because we know how much we need you or we don't always sense it like we should, but we know it's true that we need you so much. We need your word. We need you shaping us. There's so many influences on us. So we ask that by your spirit, you would work powerfully in our hearts and cause us to consider this passage, to, to really uh, ingest it, to grasp it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a story. 
I want to tell you a condensed version of one of the most beloved and iconic stories in the world. So here it is. You ready? The girl glided her foot into the slipper and married the prince. Great story, right? Well, no. You just told me the end of the story. And the end of the story only makes sense if you heard the whole story. The whole story is what gives you the lay of the land, tells you about the problem. It starts to give shape to the solution, wetting your appetite and building your anticipation, hinting at where things are moving. So the story of Cinderella becomes compelling when you hear about a sweet girl who loses first her mother and then her father and then ends up stuck as a servant in a bitter, vain household ruled by a manipulative stepmother. So there's your problem, right? A noble girl, a sweet girl like Cinderella needs to be rescued from this situation. And then as the story goes, you start to hear hints of what the solution is. There's a prince who wants to marry, but he's frustrated by the inferior character of the many eligible women. And he's throwing a ball. And all eligible maidens are to attend. The hints keep coming, right? Cinderella then overcomes enormous odds and she ends up at the ball. And then the prince is indeed captivated by who she is. But even that is not enough. Because Cinderella must flee the ball without even revealing who she is. Of course, as she does, she accidentally leaves a slipper behind. And so now the prince has a clue and he sets out to find his princess. And after all that background, all that backstory, it leads then to the moment when the girl glides her foot into the slipper and marries the prince. You see how stories work? It's also how the Bible works. You could say the story of the Bible is this. Jesus died for our sins and rose again. That's accurate. Cinderella did slip into her foot, into the slipper, and marry the prince. The Bible is about Good Friday and Easter. But that's a flat version of the story. Which is a shame, because the Bible courses with life. It pops with life. It's the whole story of the Bible that really is compelling. And critical to that whole story of the Bible is the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament gives us that lay of the land. It helps us understand what the problem is. It points us to the solution as the story builds and builds towards resolution resolution on Good Friday and Easter. So, In our passage this morning, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, hailed as the coming king, we have to see it as the culmination of so much else. 
What I'm trying to say here is that in order to understand John 12, in order to understand Jesus' kingly entrance into Jerusalem, we have to understand the backstory. We have to understand the Old Testament. And so to give you just a taste of how this is, in the first half of the sermon, I'm going to take us to two different Old Testament passages. I'm not going to do the whole Old Testament this morning. Just these two passages. So first, let's go to Psalm 118. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 511, Psalm 118. For those of you who grew up in Christian homes, this is probably a well-known and beloved psalm because it includes that famous verse, verse 24... This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You wake up on a rainy April day that's cold and dreary. Take heart. This is the day God made so we can rejoice and be glad in it. Or maybe you walk through a day that's full of blessings and good things. Well, don't forget to stop and thank God because this is a day that God has made. Now, actually, that's not what verse 24 in Psalm 118 is about. While it is true biblically that God made every day, the day in Psalm 118 verse 24 isn't just any old day. He's describing a particular day. So take a look. You got to start, we'll just start in verses 10, 10 to 13. The person writing this, likely a king of Israel, writes, All nations surrounded me. In the name of Yahweh, cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of Yahweh, cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like fire among thorns. In the name of Yahweh, cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but Yahweh helped me. You see, the situation is a king surrounded by enemies, and it seems like he's sure to lose. We learn a little later in the psalm that he'd actually been forced out of his own city, Jerusalem presumably, and so he was facing what seemed like certain defeat. The evil nations of the world had the upper hand and it looked like God's king was going to fall. But as hinted at in 10 through 13, verses 14 to 16 tell us that God intervened. He brought victory out of certain defeat. And so now this surprisingly triumphant king is returning to Jerusalem. So in verse 19, he says, Open to me the gates of righteousness. He's referring here to the gates of the city. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to Yahweh. This is the gate of Yahweh. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. And then comes verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
You see, we learn that this king was actually rejected by the builders themselves. In other words, it wasn't just foreign armies that were trying to bring down God's king. Some of his own had rejected him. And that's why I said he'd been forced to leave Jerusalem, most likely. Yet, God rescued him. And now, the king who has been vindicated, God has shown he was righteous. He had done no wrong. He is righteous. He's vindicated. And so now he's returning to Jerusalem. The city that had rejected him, the stone the builders rejected, has now become the cornerstone. So what is the day that we are to rejoice and be glad in? It's the day when God's rejected king comes back into Jerusalem having found great victory over all his enemies. The day the Lord has made is the day of victory for God's king. And then... What do the crowds that gather shout as this king comes back into this city? What words do they say as they're rejoicing and being glad? Here he comes. He actually defeated our enemies. He's coming back, vindicated. Open up the gates. What do they shout? Look at verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord or of Yahweh. We bless you from the house of Yahweh. That's just a little taste of Psalm 118, which is just one chapter in the whole Old Testament. But do you see what God's doing? He's giving a song that hints at how He, God, is going to fix the mess of this world. Now prior to this, the Old Testament's already shown that God's going to fix it through a king. He's going to fix it through a king that's going to come from David's royal line. But now we're seeing from this song that this king is going to be rejected. Rejected by his own and attacked by the world. And yet from that, he's going to emerge victorious. And then you have a picture of this victorious king entering into the city with people shouting blessings and praises the rejected king welcomed back to Jerusalem with shouts of praise. That's a hint giving a sense of what God's redemptive plan is going to be like. Just like the prince throwing a ball is a hint in the story of Cinderella. So that's Psalm 118, just one passage. The other one I want us to look at is uh, from the prophet Zechariah which is, uh, we're going to look at specifically at chapter 9. So if you're looking for Zechariah chapter 9 in the Pew Bible, page 797. It's right before the New Testament. Zechariah, Malachi, then Matthew. So we're Zechariah chapter 9. Now, just in, Ze- in Zechariah 9, God's talking about how he's going to, at the beginning, he's, gonna, he's talking about how he's going to judge evil, rebellious peoples. 
The nations of the world that have set themselves up against him, he's going to judge them. Justice is coming. All the, the broken, foul filth that represents, is represented in mankind's rebellion, it's going to be vanquished. It's going to be dealt with, put to an end. And God's going to do this in a way that he's able to establish and protect his people, his kingdom. So he's going to establish something that's good. He's going to protect his people, and he's going to get rid of all that rebellion against him. Okay, so that, that's where we're at. If you're looking at verses 1 to 8, that's kind of what verses 1 to 8 are doing. You can kind of glance and see that. But then in verse 9, we get another call to joy. Like, remember in Psalm 118, as people are rejoicing and shouting, we get another call to joy, more shouting. Why is it that they're shouting? Again, it's because a king is coming. A righteous king, a king who can save his people from the foul brokenness of this world. So you see that? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. But then it takes a weird turn. It takes a very unexpected twist. Look at the end of verse 9. Humble. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So you got this picture of the mighty, world-conquering, justice-wielding, triumphant warrior coming to save his people. And how is this great, mighty king going to come? Humble. Doesn't sound like Napoleon. Triumphant military kings don't come humbly. It's almost an oxymoron. They come in power and might. It doesn't just say humble. It says he'll come riding on a donkey, but not just a donkey, a baby donkey, a colt, a foal. That's just not how mighty warriors come. And yet God says that's how His saving King, His rescuing King, will come. And there's more hints as you read on. Look at verse 10. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. This mighty warrior is going to bring peace to all the nations. And look how far his rule will be in the end of verse 10. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. It's a dominion that will be over all the globe. And... and a, how will his people be saved? Verse 11, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. See, on the, on the basis of covenant blood, his people be rescued from their desperate situation. You get, it's just hint after hint here, clue after clue. 
And it's all building and building and building towards the climax of the story. So we have here in Zechariah 9, a mighty king defeating evil, bringing peace, rescuing his people, ruling over all the earth, saving those who are marked by his covenant blood. This great king is coming, but how is he coming? Humbly. Riding on a donkey colt. I mean, that's one of those really significant details. We're not just learning about this king's preferred method of travel. This is one of those, oops, she left her slipper on the steps of the castle kind of clues. You know, this is a big one. It's meant to clue us into something significant. It's not just his method of travel. It's something about who he is. It's cluing us into the character of this king. He's totally different from any other. His methods are different. He's a peace-bringing king. He's a humble king. And so when he comes, we should be expecting there to be something quite different about him. Something that even goes beyond his riding on a donkey colt. The foal is just a clue of something greater. That's Zechariah 9. So we got our backstory a little bit. Just little hints. Psalm 18, 118. The rejected and defeated king, the defeated king is vindicated by God comes riding into Jerusalem to shouts of praise, right? Rejected by his own, attacked by the world. Zechariah 9, the justice-bringing, peace-bringing king who rescues a people marked by his covenant blood, he comes humbly, riding on a donkey colt. Now, I think you probably know where this is going. So turn back to John 12. Now, as we get back into John 12, I want to say this. You can't understand John 12 unless you understand bacon. Let me explain what I mean. When you cook bacon, the whole house is filled with the aroma of bacon. The dog that's been lying lazily in the other room comes tromping into the kitchen. The kid who up in the bedroom couldn't hear you if you shouted his name puts down his book and comes to the kitchen. The wife who's been trying to eat carefully suddenly finds that bacon is on the list of things she's supposed to be eating. The whole home is transfixed by the odor. I discovered this through research. <laughs> Clearly, research needed to be done for this sermon. Karen, I have to cook bacon. I need to do some research for Sunday's sermon. And it's true. The aroma fills the house. It affects everything. And by this point in John's gospel, there's an aroma that fills everything. It's an aroma that affects everything in the story. It, it hangs in the air, and you can't read anything in John's gospel starting around this point without this aroma being in your nostrils, and it's the aroma of death. Last week we saw from chapter 
uh, 11 that Jesus dealt with death and you saw how troubled he was by it but also his power over it. And that was a hint we saw of just moving forward to the cross. It was the last sign in John's Gospel he does before the cross. And in that story, his disciples were worried that they were going to go to Jerusalem because Jesus might die. If we'd kept reading in the space between our two stories, we would have seen that the Pharisees by now are plotting his death. And even we see in our chapter that they're coming, with a pl- coming up with a plot to kill the now raised from the dead, Lazarus. Since he's drawing so many people to Jesus. The aroma of death hangs over this part of John's Gospel. Just look in our passage alone in verse 9. Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Verse 10. Made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Verse 16. But when Jesus was glorified, and glorified is talking particularly about his death on the cross, but also his resurrection. And then verse 17 again. Lazarus, when he called, whom he called now, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. So you get death, death, death. Now some of that's Lazarus rising from the dead, but still focusing on that story of his death. But look just ahead of our story. Look at verse 7. Mary had just anointed Jesus, and the disciples are upset by all the money that this anointing had cost, and Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. In other words, he's saying there's some level of what he's doing that's anticipating his coming burial. Death. Look just below our story at verse 23. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Death. So, Palm Sunday, Jesus riding in as the king to Jerusalem sounds a little dissonant with the aroma of death that hangs in the air. Jesus' triumphal entry, His coming in as a king, doesn't match with that aroma of death. The great king is marching into Jerusalem, welcomed by throngs, waving palm branches, and shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Which means He saves, He saves, If you ever forget what Hosanna means, just remember the chorus of that song. Hosanna, you are the God who saves. Saying, you save, you're the Savior, he's the Savior. So here he is, they're shouting. Here he comes, Hosanna, he saves. And yet it's death, death, death. How does this all make sense? Well, we need the backstory. If you just jump right in, 
It doesn't. But if you have the backstory, it actually does. So enter Psalm 118, which the crowd is quoting. Did you see that in verse 13? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's right out of Psalm 118. And they even make it clear it's the king of Israel they're talking about. In this psalm, it tells us that the cornerstone would first be rejected. Yes, he'd be welcomed in Jerusalem, but not before he'd been put out of Jerusalem. So when you see this mix of death, the Pharisees wanting him dead, with the coming king, Psalm 118 helps you make sense of it. He's going to be rejected. And then enter Zechariah 9. This king is different. He's humble. He rides a donkey colt. His people are saved by the blood of a covenant. Again, not surprisingly, John tells us What's happening here is fulfilling Zechariah 9. The disciples didn't get it right away. But once they saw Jesus die and rise, then they're like, oh, now it's making sense. But do you see how the grand narrative of the Bible is starting to come together in this moment? This behold your king moment. John's saying, look, this is your king. Here he is. Behold him. This is King Jesus. This is the one hailed as the saving king. He's coming into Jerusalem. The rescuer is here. The one who will bring peace and deliver his people is here. And that really could be the theme of this passage. Behold your king. But all of it is being carefully pieced together by God with great care because every detail matters in helping us see what kind of king this is. Have you ever seen uh, uh, footage of a coronation ceremony? Every detail of it is exactly prescribed Each gesture or utterance is meant to convey something. And that's how this kingly moment is. It's all meant to convey to us so much. It's meant to show us what our rescuing king is like. If you want to know what Jesus, the rescuing king that Christianity is all about, If you want to know what he is like, this is a great place to be. You have the aroma of death hanging over his coronation. coronation. You have Psalm 118, rejection before embrace, being quoted by the crowds. You have Zechariah 9, the mighty king who comes humbly on a donkey colt and it's playing out before us, before our very eyes. What is all this saying about our King? 
I think of the Cinderella story and those earlier parts. They all come together, right? When Cinderella slips her foot in to the slipper. Now the story's pieces all work. This is the coronation scene. I don't want to overstate that. He still has to die and rise, which we'll talk about. There's even a sense where he has to come back in Revelation. But this is the picture, the kingly picture that the Gospels give us. It's our behold your king moment and it's teaching us about who Jesus is and, and, and how he ushers his kingdom in. You see, Jesus' first step in bringing peace to this world, his first step as the one who's going to bring justice, vanquish evil, save a covenant people, is to deal with the sin in our hearts. Talk about the blood of the covenant. The blood of bulls and goats wasn't going to be sufficient. Incidentally, nor is the self-esteem movement of our day that says we're just basically good people. We all do good things and just believe in ourselves trust our inherent goodness, then we can get out of this mess. That's not going to be sufficient either. The, the foul brokenness that wreaks its havoc on our world is also a foul brokenness that is in here, plaguing my soul. Sure, it might be a different extent for one person than it is for another. And that's because the pressures and the freedoms on one person are different than the pressures and opportunities for, for sin afforded others. But the Bible makes clear that the world's problem is that sin, to whatever extent it's there, has cut us off from God. So sin and death reign. And the Bible says they reign in the human heart. So when Jesus comes, his first move is to deal with our hearts. And that's why death is hanging over this. Because the way he's going to do it is to be rejected and to be crucified, to die, to pay the penalty for our sin. So that we could be reunited with our Father. You see, Jesus is going to die to rescue us. He's going to be rejected so that he can become the cornerstone. You see that level of humility that goes way, way beyond just riding a donkey colt? The way he's bringing his kingdom is totally different. I want us to see Jesus and how he loves. When he's coming to usher in his kingdom, he's marching to his death for you. So that all that 
junk you've done, all the junk I've done, doesn't cut me off from my Father. He loves. What kind of king is like that? He's humble. Laying down his life. He's tender. That's the kind of king we have. A king that was willing to absorb all the wrath that should have gone against us for our sins. Kings matter. They matter immensely. What kind of king do you have? Come on. I don't have a king. Nothing rules over me. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. Maybe. Maybe. But most of us either acknowledge... Most of us here acknowledge that there is an oppressing king and a rescuing king in this world. Now, some of us do this implicitly, but we acknowledge it nonetheless. A rescuing or an oppressing king and a rescuing king. Today, it's probably a something more likely than a someone, but something is your oppressing king. There's something that reigns over our dark world, and that reigns over your dark soul. You guys remember the old movie, The Love Bug? About that Volkswagen Beetle, Herbie, that has a personality? I love the scene. It's trying to set two people up, so it locks them in the car, and it pulls into a drive-in diner. And uh, the heroine's kind of knocking at the door, saying, I want out. And there's two hippies in the... Uh, Volkswagen bus next to him. And one of them looks out and says, We all prisoners, chicky baby. We all locked in. We all prisoners, chicky baby. We all locked in. As we mature, I think we become more aware of that. That there are forces bigger than ourselves that lock us in. There are deeper and more complex elements of this world that imprison us. And because we all sense this oppressive king, we all place our hope in some rescuer king. Now again, it might not be an actual person, but our hope is in something. It could be in you. It could be in your own inherent strength and worth and goodness. I'm my own king, my own rescuer. Maybe you even see yourself as part of the world's rescue. The label for that is self-righteous. Or maybe your hope is in science or rationality or a greater spirit in the universe that's at work. It could be in some political system or party. Democracy will save the world except in Russia. Socialism will save the world, except in Russia. But something, something is your rescuer king. So we have an oppressive king, an oppressing king, and a rescuing king. 
Now, now here's what the Bible says about the oppressing king. The Bible said that, says that our current world is governed by sin and death. It says man unleashed it when we rebelled against God. It says the devil who loves to deceive and to kill is behind it. So you could talk about any of that, but I'll say the oppressive king, the reign in this world is sin and death. And it's true at a macro level over the whole world, and it's true at a personal, individual level of my heart. And the Bible says it is a terrible reign. And it says it makes sense of all that's wrong within the world. Are we expected to deliver ourselves from that? What king can save us from that? And the Bible says that the rescuing king is Jesus. King or Christ Jesus. And this Palm Sunday scene is one of the clearest pictures in the Bible of our king. It's a beautiful, compelling scene. It is an incredible picture. He knows he's marching to his death. He knows he's marching into the teeth of the lion, but he finds a foal and marches forward to his death as the crowds cheer and welcome him. You've got to be thinking as he looks, he's going, or I would expect that he's thinking as he walks through there, yes, I will be your king, but not in the way you expect. Yes, I will be the one who saves, the Hosanna. But not in the way you expect. He must become sin. He must suffer in their place. He must suffer in our place. But he was willing to do it. He was willing to to face all that, to reconcile us to our Father. What love. What humility. What a worthy king. Maple Avenue Baptist Church, behold your king. Worship him. Bow your hearts before him. With fuller understanding, let's join our voices with the crowd. Hosanna! He saves, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. In some theological circles, they argue about whether you can have Jesus as your Savior without having him as your King. I'll trust Jesus to get me into heaven, but I'm not going to follow him or let him lead my life. It's just nonsensical to me. If you know Jesus as your Savior, how could you not want someone like him to be your king? What better alternative do you have in mind? There's none who's stronger. None who's more just. There is none wiser. None more loving. None more humble. None who has sacrificed more for you. None who has gone so far as to rescue you. If you actually see Jesus like that as your Savior, you don't shirk from Him. You run to Him. 
you throw off any other kings in your life and you embrace the only king truly worthy of our praise. The rescuing king described in the whole story of the Bible is so beautiful, so compelling, so perfect, so worthy of our worship, so worthy of our faith. Maple Avenue, behold your king. Let's pray. God, we believe, we embrace this King Jesus. Help us. I ask that you'd increase our faith as we see Jesus more clearly. Help us to see the beauty of our King. In Christ's name, amen.